Let's turn in our Bibles to Deuteronomy 16, and we'll be starting at verse 18. We'll be reading to 17, verse 7, and 18 through 20 are God's appointment of judges and officers in the land of Israel, so we'll be focusing on on the the, the task of the civil magistrate in our sermon today. So Deuteronomy 17, starting in 18, let's hear the word of the Lord. You shall appoint judges and officers in all your towns that the Lord your God is giving you, according to your tribes, and they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. You shall not pervert justice, you shall not show partiality, and you shall not accept a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of the righteous. Justice and only justice you shall follow, that you may live and inherit the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not plant any tree as an Asherah beside the altar of the Lord your God that you shall make. And you shall not set up a pillar which the Lord your God hates. You shall not sacrifice to the Lord your God an ox or a sheep in which is a blemish, any defect whatever, for that is an abomination to the Lord your God. If there is found among you within any of your towns that the Lord your God is giving you, a man or woman who does what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God in transgressing his covenant and has gone and served other gods and worshipped them, or the sun and moon or any of the host of heaven which I have forbidden, and it is told you and you hear it, then you shall inquire diligently. And if it is true and certain that such an abomination has been done in Israel, then you shall bring out of your gates that man or woman who has done this evil thing, and you shall stone that man or woman to death with stones. On the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. The hand of the witnesses shall be first against him to, him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. So far, the reading of God's word. Beloved in the Lord, Moses' instruction in the book of Deuteronomy spends a fair amount of time explaining the fifth commandment. And we must remember here that this is not merely a summary of the law that the people have heard over their time in the desert, but it's the word of God through Moses as Moses prepares to die. There will be a transition in power from Moses to Joshua and from Joshua to the elders of Israel. So Moses especially wants to focus here because here is where God's law, it's it's through the magistrate, through other leaders of the people such as prophets, priests, and kings that God will continue to propagate the teaching of the law. God saves, God has saved his people, he's freed his people, and now he preserves their life through these and other rulers. In the same way, and we can see the pattern here, Christ delegated his authority to the officers of the church in order to preserve the church. And of course, not only the officers of his church, but we also know that by the work of, of providence... The magistrate, according to Romans 13, is also ordained by God. So the words that are given here apply, in a certain sense, to both, to the leaders of the church and to the magistrate today. 
But it all begins with the people of God. God uses the people of God in Israel to choose judges who love justice. It begins with your self-government. Although leaders can be worse or better than the people, there's often a relation between how the people forget God and their leaders forget God. You can think of the book of Jeremiah, where the people have fallen into spiritual slavery, and that is correlated to Israel becoming a place of slavery, where many of the Hebrews hold on to fellow Hebrews as slaves, even though they are commanded in the law to release them. So I bring you the word of the Lord under the theme, God desires a well-governed people. And first, we're going to look at the judges and righteousness. Second, we're going to look at the judges and the first commandment, the judges and the call to love God first. Our text begins with the word you. And in order to understand what's going on here, we need to understand what that you means. Moses is addressing the people as a whole, as a community Israel shows her desire for the justice of God by setting up judges amongst herself. These judges are stewards, stewards of God's law. They are also stewards of what we would call natural rights in our society today. The Ten Commandments or the Ten Words lay out the basic ways in which you might possibly transgress against the rights of God and the rights of your neighbor. Now, in our society, we tend to think of government in terms of the social contract. Maybe you've heard that before. I give up some of my rights as an individual in order to live in society. It might even add, in nature I am free, but I give up some of that freedom in order to live with other people. That's not the picture that's given in Scripture. I do not lose some of my rights in order to be part of society. The Scripture does not teach that we have order at the expense of personal freedom. Rather, it is through good order that we perpetuate freedom. If each person lives according to his or her calling, the civil magistrate to execute vengeance, the priest to teach the law, and the father to raise his children in the fear of the Lord, then society will be free. That leads to another question. How does the Bible inform my understanding of rights? We have a lot of talk about rights Today And the Bible doesn't speak about rights. Yet the idea of rights can be found in Scripture. We've already mentioned how the Ten Commandments can be looked at as a, as a warning against infringing on the rights of your neighbor. Yet, strictly speaking, these would not be the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Or to quote the Canadian Constitution, the right to peace, order, and good government. Rather, these would be the rights not to be stolen from and the right not to be killed. 
The rights in the American and Canadian constitutions are based off of these natural, or we might say, God-given rights. The other problem with the social contract is the fact that we do not come to society as mere individuals. We are born as small, needy children. We're a you before we can ever say I. We're born into our society and we grow up owing our parents, our God, our society for the gifts that we have received from them. Our first attitude then should be thanksgiving and honor to God, to our parents, to our church, to our society for the good things that we receive. As Paul, Paul warns in Romans 13, we begin by giving honor to whom honor is due. It's this attitude that's so necessary for Israel to have as she is to, if she is to hear God in this passage. If she honors her parents, the parents that have now sworn an oath to serve God, she will continue to appoint good judges and officers in all her towns. That word appoint, that word appoint is important here as well. It demonstrates the official nature of the position of these judges and officers. These are men who are officially put in place to bear the sword of God's vengeance. They're put in place to bear the sword of God's vengeance. You don't often hear about that today, about the civil magistrate being there to bear God's vengeance. You see, people do not automatically have the right to avenge themselves. It's a place for self-defense, but in the scripture, the work of vengeance, first of all, belongs to God. And he gives that right to the judges and the officers in society. This work of vengeance is the task of the civil government. They bear the sword in order to punish the wicked and to protect the righteous. I've already alluded to this, but there's another question we can ask of this text. Do the people choose their leaders, or does God appoint their leaders? And it's both most of the time. The general pattern in Scripture is that the people of God choose from among themselves judges, and those judges are in turn appointed by God. That appointment comes from God. That's where providence comes in. God uses the regular processes of recognizing among ourselves those who are gifted in ruling, and they are honored as leaders in society. You see, the Bible is not simply democratic or monarchic or some other form of government. It doesn't even per se give us a particular form of government. Instead, it gives us a, the pattern of a mixed form of government and principles by which to govern ourselves. These judges, these judges that are talked about here, they're, they're very much comparable to our judges. The officials here don't really have an exact match in our modern society. If you know you, your history, you might be aware of this position called the bailiff. The bailiff. And that might be something comparable to how these officials lived. 
Andy Griffith and the Andy Griffith Show might be similar, although a lot of the things he does are connected with a more modern view of policing. Judges are those who decide between the cases of different individuals, and the officials are those who execute the orders of the judges. We might say they're the hands and feet of the judges, ensuring that a thief paid restitution to the person he stole from, or keeping somebody in a holding cell for a couple days until his or her case was decided. God's intention here is that justice be as local as possible. The ideal, of course, is that each grown individual should be able to rule themselves well. God calls you to care about justice. God gives the law to all the people of Israel, and each one is responsible to hear it and apply it. Practically, the primary bearers of that responsibility are the fathers of each household, ensuring that their children are raised in the fear of the Lord and setting an example of a holy life. The Bible describes this, this peace and, and tranquility of a well-regulated society, a well-governed society, as every man living under his own vine and fig tree. In other words, each man is taking care of his own affairs. But even in the most peaceable times, that peace can be shattered because of sin. Ecclesiastes puts it this way, one sinner can destroy much good. Then the local magistrate may step in to carry out justice. In that way, God guards the peace and order of his people. How does this apply to us? Remember the basic rule for understanding how Deuteronomy applies to us and, and the Old Testament in general. First, we see how it is fulfilled in Christ. Then we see how God uses the principles for the sake of his church and through the church, God calls the rest of society to these principles of good order and peace. Christ, of course, bears in himself all the offices of the Old Testament. He rules over the church as her head, and he rules over all as king, whether they recognize his rule or not. The officers of the church are not called to bear the sword as the civil government does, Yet, bearing this word we find in Deuteronomy, they call the civil government to recognize the Lord Jesus Christ and rule according to his righteousness. So in that sense, the, word, the church would merely add to these words in Deuteronomy 16, in Christ, in Christ, choose judges among yourselves. In Christ, under his authority. The church also recognizes how the principles here apply to the church. In our churches, we still are careful to emphasize local rule. The Reformation recovered this truth, emphasizing the importance of having local elders and leaders in the church who answer directly to Christ. We can see how God's intentions for a good society are fulfilled in the church. We know and elect our elders, and this hopefully strengthens our trust in them as well. Yes, we're patient with their faults, but we honor them as those who seek to preserve the holiness of Christ's church. And as church, 
we are also careful to observe God's call to love justice. Even though the church does not bear the sword, she is called to love God's righteousness in all that she does. She is called to bear the word of the righteous Lord to those around here. I emphasize that you here again that we had at the beginning of the text. If the people in general love the Lord, if they love the justice of God, they will desire leaders who also love that same justice. And now God has a sober warning for those who are appointed as judges. And we can apply this to anyone in a position of authority. You shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality. And you shall not accept a bribe. For a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of righteousness. Justice and only justice you shall follow that you may live and inherit the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Notice again the you. This is a call to the judges primarily, but the you continues to call all the people to reflect their God in his love for justice. This is most important, however, for those who are guardians of God's people, for those who are called to defend the weak and the strong when the strong seek to gain advantage over them through deceit or fraud. More than that, these are men who also represent God. That is why God will often be angry with the leaders of Israel first, with the judge and the Levite who twist his law and lead his people into sin. That's why our first anger should be reserved for the deceivers and the tyrants who use their position to destroy, while we should be more patient with the deceived. In ruling, there are two things that God highlights here, partiality and bribes. Partiality is to favor those of your economic stature, or those who are in the ruling class, or those who are celebrities, anybody you might feel more affinity to. God wants us to judge with him in mind, his holiness, his righteousness. The other thing that God warns against is bribes. And that doesn't necessarily cover only the giving of a sum of money. It's rather any advantage you may receive from adjudicating one way rather than another. That's why God adds these words. A bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of the righteous. A bribe blinds the eyes to God's truth and God's desires. These judges and officials are called to have a complete devotion to justice. Justice and only justice you shall follow. So we might ask, what about mercy? The first thing to note in answer to that question is that mercy and justice are not necessarily opposites. If a poor man is being oppressed by a rich neighbor, the protections of justice give mercy to that poor man. And the other thing to note is that different roles in a good and righteous society will tend to highlight different aspects of who God is. The civil magistrate is called to fully focus on seeing that justice is done, and that is the role they play in society. 
We can think of Psalm 101, where David promises God, I will look with favor to the faithful in the land, whereas morning by morning I will destroy all the wicked in the land, cutting off all the evildoers from the city of the Lord. Justice for victims and its application through punishment on the sword ought to be the primary concern of the civil magistrate. And in a sense, our civil magistrate has flatly denied that calling by taking even the possibility of capital punishment off the table. That's a flat denial of bearing the sword of vengeance. Even so, we ought to continue to pray for our magistrate. We ought to continue to bless them because we desire peace and freedom for the nation so that the gospel may continue to spread. What are we ultimately about? We're about Christ's kingdom. That's the big picture. In Israel, the civil magistrate are essential to the health of God's people. By keeping justice, the people may live and inherit the land God is giving them. The land here is theologically is particular is is theological sorry the land is theological it's particularly the holy land which is fulfilled in the person of jesus christ we can apply this to ministers and elders whom god uses to preserve his people but as i've already mentioned there continues to be an application to society as well In general, the freedom and order of Canada and Manitoba depend on a healthy civil magistrate. But ultimately, the judges of Israel fail, and it's not so different today. Just as the people failed to love God, so did those who ruled over Israel. Often it was the leaders who were first to fail, and they led the people into sin. We sang from Psalm 82 about the gods that assemble in court. Those gods are the leaders that God has established over the the people of Judah. They have failed in their calling to carry out the justice of God. Why is that? It's because they have forgotten God. And that brings us to our second point. The judges and the first commandment. We read beyond verse 20 of our text into the next chapter. Here we have warnings about serving other gods and corrupting the worship of God. We have punishments for a a person among the people of God who serves another god. As we might imagine, the king who establishes judges expects those judges to recognize his decrees, to remember that there is a king who must be honored and given his due in the land. And here the king is the Lord God. And his judges are to ensure that there is no treason against that king in the land. That's why we seem to jump from a discussion of the fifth commandment in verses 18 through 20 to the first commandment in verse 21. God has appointed these judges to be his representatives. He literally calls them gods in Psalm 82. But if they forget God they will soon realize that like any man, they will die. These gods ought to use their time to show honor to the true God. 
our parents and other authorities are established through the providence of God, and we are called to receive that with thankfulness. According to Deuteronomy, the guilty party who rejects the true God and serves another must be executed. This demonstrates the importance of recognizing God as king. Those who reject God as king will possibly corrupt the rest of the people. This demonstrates the importance of loving God and the destructiveness of choosing to serve another God. If the judges fail to do this, the people will no longer love God, and in turn, judges will be raised up who do not care about God's commandments. With Christ, because of the union we may have with him through the Spirit, we have a strong protection against the corruption of those who reject God. And so, in the church, we no longer need to execute the unbeliever. We remove him from the church through excommunication so that the members of the church may not stumble. But there's no need for execution. However, the failure of the church to exercise proper discipline does affect society. We are part of a nation that was largely built on Christian principles, yet we're a nation who has forgotten God, largely through the laxness of the church in promoting the love of God, first of all. Now today, we as faithful Christians are somewhat marginalized in society. We're not Israel in the wilderness, full of opportunity to start something fresh. We're not able to exert the influence faithful Christians may have at one time or another exerted. We have to work with the opportunities our God gives us. Yet we are still called to pray for and honor the civil magistrate. God can use our faithful acts to begin to change things. We must also remember that God has set his king to reign in Zion, our Lord Jesus Christ. The promise of Psalm 82 is that even though the judges fail, God will not fail. When the civil magistrate is corrupted and there seem to be no political options left, we still trust that God will judge. We can be grateful for the rule of law that remains in Canada, and we're free to use that in a God-honoring way. But when that fails, we trust that God will judge. Remember the words of God. Vengeance is mine. God is bringing justice, and we can depend on his goodness. Seeing how far our system falls short of the freedom and peace of the order of God can be frustrating. It can even cause despair. But we know that Christ is king. And that's where we have to end. We can see the beauty of the order that God intends for Israel and by extension the church. And the church in turn informs and encourages the broader society in loving the order of God. We don't need to give in to constant outrage and anger. We don't need to rebel. Rather, our calling is to continue to live in a way that lives out the righteousness of God. We can exemplify the beauty of Zion in the order we live in, in the church. I'll leave you with these words from Philippians. The early church lived and worked in a, hard, in a largely hostile society. 
after Paul has emphasized that we don't belong to the systems of this world, but to the systems of heaven. He says this, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. All glory be to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's come to our God with singing. Let's sing together again from Psalm 72, Psalm 72, verses 4, 7, and 10.